And good morning, everybody. Welcome to FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Bankers. Joined this morning with a special guest, Kyle Stevenson from Georgia State University. He's the head track and field coach. Kyle, thanks for joining me. If you wouldn't mind just telling everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. But first, again, happy Friday. Thanks for having me, Tim. Um, so you want a brief synopsis, like my coaching career, how I got into it? Exactly, yes. Jeez, okay, I'll make it quick. So for me, coaching started in 2010, right after I graduated undergrad. Uh, wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do. Uh, just kind of took a summer job in Knoxville, just being a, uh, at that time it was called Knoxville Track Club, just being a club coach with some six-year-olds. Uh, actually had a fun summer and I, I was like, well, maybe I can do this. So a year later, I stayed in Knoxville uh, to get my master's and I ended up coaching my first like real, real team, a high school team, Austin East. And that was my first real deal coaching job to where I had the men's program, uh, specifically the sprints, but I basically coached everything because it's high school. Uh, we had some, some, some success there. So we had taken fourth place at state as a team and the school hadn't been to a state meet in seven years. Wow. So I was like, well, maybe I am good at this, but that was a short end of my coaching career at that point. Uh, I decided to take like the semi-professional route and run track and field for a couple of years. Uh, so I got my college coaching stint started 2014 fall 2014 and that started at East Tennessee State. So one of my former coaches at the University of Tennessee, uh, he offered me a position, a uh, good colleague and friend of mine, her son Stamps was the assistant there. He's still there. Uh, he reached out to me and said, hey, it doesn't pay much money, but it does get your foot in the door at the mm -hmm. division one level. So I stayed there. And I moved across the country to the state of Washington. And I stayed at St. Martin's, which is a Division II school for two years, at a two-time national champion high jumper, uh, now school record holder. And from there, I actually wanted to retire from coaching. <laughs> so <laughs> at a very young age. Um, so that was 2017. When I, I left St. Martin's June 2017, and I went into the private sector for two months. I was working with Michael Johnson Performance yep. down in Frisco. Um, so that I love, uh, not that I don't love coaching, but I mean, I just loved working with different disciplines of athletes, lacrosse, soccer, football, basketball, the whole nine. And I love to coach. So I uh, had a two month run and I actually got a phone call from her son. He said, hey, Georgia State has a position open, you know, here in Atlanta, Georgia. I think you would be a good fit for it. I was like, ah, you know, I'm kind of done with the NCAA. You know, I'm comfortable where I am. I love Texas. This is my second time living in Texas. I didn't want to leave. He was like, well, man, just take the interview. I took the interview and saw the potential, saw the growth of the school and where it was headed and where we are headed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, this is a good place to be. So I took this job in 2017 as an assistant. Uh, two years later, I was named head track and field coach. Um, and it has been quite the ride so far. Um, well, I, I want to talk a little bit about that ride because that's that's some of the where the, the nuts and bolts of coaching come into, right? The challenges and the successes. When, when you talk about track and field, one of the interesting things for me is that we, we talk a lot about track, but we don't necessarily talk so much about field. 
and a lot of coaches come through and they have expertise in track, but they're also responsible for all these throwers, you know, the javelin, the discus, the shot. How do you, how do you coach disciplines that are so diverse, recognizing that you, you know, you came as an athlete from one or two disciplines? Great question, because by nature, uh, I was a short sprinter, no pun intended, because mm-hmm. I am small. <laughs> I've had my most success, in my opinion, in the field events. And one of my mentors, Norbert Elliott, he told me that normally when you're not coaching what you raced in, you tend to just look at it completely differently, and you mm-hmm. don't want to mess up. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So my... My national champion high jump, his name is Michael Smith. So I had never coached high jump before, let alone even try to do the event. But my master's is in sports psychology and motor behavior. So we dealt with a lot of cueing and how the body moves and everything. Mm-hmm. So naturally, I just learned the event. So when I'm coaching high jump or triple jump or long jump, uh, I've coached javelin, I've coached shot. Uh, I... I start with just learning how that athlete is supposed to move and not necessarily worry about whether they are doing something different or using an implement. I just simply look at how is their body supposed to move. And then once I identify how it's supposed to move correctly, I build cues around it. Um, so it's really no different than sprinting. Uh, and But a lot of people stray away from the field events because they think they are more difficult. It's not really the case. Uh, I do think competition-wise, if you're an athlete competing in one, I believe that the hammer, uh, high jump, and triple jump may be the most difficult field events, in my personal opinion. I could be wrong because I've never done them at a competitive level, but just watching it and coaching it and seeing everything that goes into it, that's what I believe. But that's what I do. Like I said, I identify how the body moves and use cues. Well, a long time ago, I was very unsuccessful in the high jump, triple jump and, uh, and javelin. So I, I can promise you they're very, very difficult disciplines to master. The, the reality is, is that all disciplines are difficult to master, right? And, you know, something like the hurdles, a lot of us could get wrong. And so how much time when you coach is spent on the technique of these disciplines versus the actual putting in the work in the gym or on the track or on the field? Uh, so if we were to break down a week, um, I'll use my fall. I'll use my fall week. At least three days a week is strictly technical. Mm. I don't worry about running. You know, we don't worry about jumping or anything. It is straight technique. So and my tech, my technical component looks like this. So one coach may say, oh, you know, if you're a quarterback and you're throwing the football, your arm needs to be here, your elbow needs to be here. That's one part of it. Mine extends to an actual feeling. So if we're talking triple jump and I have my athletes barefoot on, you know, football turf, I'm talking them and walking them through what are you feeling from big toenail to the heel of your foot? How does the ground feel when you may land on one side of your foot, on the right side, on the left side, the front side, the back side versus your entire foot? Because if we're if I'm teaching you to really make good contact with the ground and triple jump, 
we want to create a gray surface area. So I want you to be flat footed, but in me cueing you to be flat footed, you need to understand and actually feel what it feels like to be flat footed. You know, so that's how technical we do get. And we do that at least three days a week mm. in the fall. And then I'll spend time running two days a week, but I am technical every single day. Uh, I care more about how you look when you're running and jumping versus how far you jumped or how fast you ran. Because in having good technique and being able to execute it over and over and over, it creates consistency. Consistency leads to great performances. Great performances lead to championships. Um, I don't care that you can run fast or jump far one time. I want mm. you to be able to do it 10 times or 12 times, uh, 16 times, you know, because that'll get you through rounds and through the season. Yeah, it was interesting. We, we had on an Olympian hurdler a, a few weeks ago who talked about this idea of consistency in track and field in when, when you get out of the NCAA and, you know, go professional consistency is, is more important than the one-off events because meets want to know, is this person, is Kyle Stevenson going to come and produce a performance we can expect from him as opposed to one great performance, nine bad performances, which one is he going to bring to our, our track? And so it's a great point when we, and, and by the way, if you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Kyle Stevenson. He's the head track and field coach at Georgia State University. If you have a question for him, just put it in your chat box and, and we'll make sure it gets to him. When, when you look at being a coach, you've done some private work. You've, you've been an assistant coach. Now you're a head coach. What are some of the challenges you've experienced in coaching? Because, you know, I may get students coming into my programs, you know, Dr. Baggers, I want to be a coach. Great. Do you really know what that means? Do you really know what the word actually means when we talk about the, the roles and responsibilities and challenges that go with being a coach? Can you talk a little bit about that from your experience? Definitely. Um, I'll start with the, the toughest thing, and this is from being an assistant and a head, definitely more as a head, um, trying to be fair. So if I have I'll, I'll use my team. So I'm responsible for 32 women, you know, specifically on a daily basis. I work with about 15 in the sprints okay. and jumps, but being fair. So I may know some personal issues you may be dealing with at home. Uh, I know everyone's individual scholarship package. Um, so there are things that I can't necessarily discuss with other people but I have to navigate and making decisions for their individual and for the greater good. Mm. But on the outside looking in, because you're someone that may not know what Jane Doe is doing or what her situation is, it may look like favoritism. And what I have to explain to my young ladies all the time is I look out for everyone. So you may need a day off one day, you know, uh, the next person may need, a practice off to take an exam. You may need a day off and I'm dealing with women. You know, it may be, we call it hell week. It may be your hell week. So we may need to make some adjustments for you. Okay, I make those adjustments or I'm, I'm very big on birthdays. If my young lady say, hey, my parents planned a trip, you know, I would like to leave for the weekend. I'm fine with it. You know, so I'm very flexible, but it gets very difficult in trying to be fair. That's one of the biggest challenges. Second thing, head coaching, I had never seen a budget until this year. 
at all the schools I had worked for, I had been given money to work with from mm -hmm. the entire budget. I had never seen an entire budget ever. And I was announced head coach June the 13th last year internally. And a week later, I was given the budget and said, hey, submit us what you're going to do for the whole year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. So itemized line for line, you yeah. know, just doing it. So that that is the biggest challenge uh, when it comes to the administrative side. Everything in between has been pretty easy for me. Uh, I love to recruit. Recruiting comes very easy. Uh, the challenge with recruiting is I'm just took between a lot of big schools. So you have Georgia Tech, UGA, Clemson, South Carolina, Auburn, all within four hours or less of us. You know, so that's very challenging. Uh, but just getting to at least access big athletes and at least have them show some interest has never been an issue. Um, and then just overall management. You know, you have to manage different personalities. You know, so I can't coach – I can't coach Tim and Kyle the same way. You know, Tim may be more receptive to me raising my voice. Kyle may not. Um, Tim may be more receptive to me talking to him in private, not addressing him in front of the team. You know, so those are things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So imagine one person having to shoot, navigate just 15, let alone the additional 15 or 17 you know, so those those are the biggest challenges, hands down. Yeah. You have 32 athletes. You can't give them all scholarships. Uh, you may not be able to give everyone full scholarships. How do you decide who gets what? Great question. So if let's deal with it, let's look at it like this. If someone is coming out of high school or if they're transferring, we have a tier system and we have a chart that we use and okay. it is based off of how well would you perform nationally and how well will you perform in the conference? Everybody's a hard worker. I don't care how hard you work. Can you score points? Can you pass class? And I don't even give increases or anything off of anyone passing class. You're supposed to come in and get a degree. Right. So when you're in school, and you're already on the team in order to receive increases, we expect you to go above what the expectations are. So if I expect you to score, I may not expect you, I expect all of my athletes to be a Sunbelt champion and qualify. But but let's say, uh, and I'll use me, I was a, I was a walk-on at Tennessee. So I turned down track and field scholarships and I was a walk-on and I'll use it with our tier system. So coming in, I was not in scoring range at all. So on our chart, it may say zero to 20% is like walk-on slash potential Sunbelt score. You know, and so you would fall in between that percentage. So it doesn't mean you're going to get 0%. doesn't mean you're going to get the full 20%, but you're somewhere in between based off of what your marks are. Then the next tier up is, okay, this person either scored or can score based off their marks between fifth and eighth place. So then this year, 20% to say 40% mark, and it works all the way up. So if anyone is looking for a full ride at any university that I coach at, I expect you to be in the NCAA final <laughs> anytime in June, and that's how I'll offer you a full ride. Um, and outside of that, more specifically to Georgia State, because becoming an NCAA champion 
it's a more difficult task than it might be if I'm at, say, a Florida State, just because of the level of athletes that we normally get in. Um, I'll look at it as, can you come in and be first, second, or third in the Sun Belt? And so then that pushes the conversation of us offering you, you know, a full scholarship or close to full. And, of course, you can't. You, I could scholarship everyone. It would all be a partial. And I could give everybody books, and that's a 3% scholarship. Right. You know, and it leaves my equivalency pretty low. But that's how it works. You have to be honest with people. You have to, you know, show them those charts, explain why, and just let them know that my job is I definitely want to put you in the best financial situation, whether it being, you know, graduating debt-free or with minimal debt possible. But, of course, 18 scholarships don't stretch to 32, even if you gave everyone 50%. Right. Uh, that at least gets you 36. Right. So, yeah. So, you, you have some divisions, financial divisions in your team. You also have some divisions in your team where you have yours, your, your athletes who are always going to be in that team lineup, right, when you go to, a, to an event. And you've got some who uh, probably aren't going to be or – maybe on the cusp of being included. How do you motivate those athletes who, you know, look at, you know, superstar Jane over here and they go, well, I'm never going to get in the team because Jane is always in the team and taking my spot. Why should I train? Why should I work hard? Why should I put in the effort knowing that for the next two or three years, I may never even see a lineup in a competition. That's hard to do as a coach. I think I think you might have um, our practices tapped. So here's, here's, here's <laughs> no, I've just been in coaching. I mean, yeah. it's, it exists everywhere. Here's the mistake I made this year. Uh, but before I say that, I always say this: I don't believe I can motivate anyone. I think there's only one form of motivation. I think that it is intrinsic. I think that what people refer to as external motivation, I simply think it's influence. So uh, I don't think I can in motivate anyone, but I definitely think I can influence them. Mm -hmm. So the mistake I made this year, I started out, I set the tone of saying, you know, we were going to have, we're going to have a travel squad and a non-travel squad and set that standard. I dropped the ball and the mistake that I made was I fell victim to the student athlete. I fell victim to, more than one student athlete saying, hey, I can't necessarily perform or get these marks if I don't have the opportunities. Fair enough point. I then allowed those athletes to travel and they still didn't perform. So mistake on my end because I believe briefly, because we're going to get back to it next year uh, once this COVID is over here. I made the mistake because I think it watered down, you know, just my authority and really like getting people to understand that this is what it's going to be. Um, but I also don't think that it'll be everlasting. But I, I think that as a society and, and definitely in the coaching world, I'm not the only one that has fallen victim to that. But we kind of we're getting away from what sport should be uh, and sports should be competitive. It should be fun, you know. Um, it should be for everyone, but at the same time, everyone shouldn't necessarily have the same opportunity. Success. Yeah, yeah, not the same opportunity, but like just not the same experience in a sense. It's, it, there's a reason why 
um, Florida State has its national championships and national champions is for a reason. Uh, there's also a reason why there's a school and a city that we don't know about uh, that doesn't do really well, but there's a place for everyone, you know, so there's always a place for everyone to experience that. And, you know, that's the mistake that we made, but it happens all the time. But the way that I would encourage any athlete, no matter the sport or any person in general, if it's something that you want, um, put everything you have into it, but also be realistic with yourself and be realistic about the goals that you have. So I'll use my kale, my high jumper again. So when I inherited him, he was only jumping six, eight. He was jumping six, eight, six, nine consistently, uh, had always gone to the division two national championship, but hadn't been on the top three podium. So the goal we set in that first year was like, Hey, let's try to, and he had jumped like 16 and three quarter one time. So I said, hey, let's try to jump 6, 10, 6, 11 consistently. And if you can jump that consistently over the years, it shows that you, you should be first, second, or third at the NCAA meet for Division Two. That was the goal that we set. So Michael, very, very motivated to the point where he would ask me before I could even send out, you know, the plan for the week or anything. You know, it's those things that you'll see in people that want to do things. You know, they they have intangible uh, characteristics about them that they'll show if they want to get there. And then we set the same goal in year two. Uh, he ended up jumping seven feet, I think seven feet and a quarter to win his first national championship outdoor, uh, which actually the guy that he beat, the guy, his best mark was like seven, six at the time. But the difference with Michael, Michael jumped a clean competition. So no misses at all. His only miss was at the seven one, which would have been a PR for him. And the guy that jumped seven, six, he was just inconsistent. But same thing, and we just moved into the following year. And so with success comes more motivation for any individual to work hard. I think, and I think that success starts with what are you doing at practice? So he was starting to clear higher bars at practice. Like, well, I want to do a little bit more, you know, and just start feeling better, you know, and then the way that we were training, like physique just changed. And it's those little, he saw those small wins and it made him want more. So I encourage my athletes or anyone else that has athletes, like give them those small wins if they aspire to be on that travel team where they can but also don't fall victim to, because sometimes we know if they're just not going to cut it, uh, don't pacify them because they may throw a fit about it uh, because that's just a mistake that I made. And I think that temporarily it watered down my program. That's a great response. Just a reminder, we're, we're watching Kyle Stevenson, head track and field coach at Georgia State. If you have a question, just put it in your chat box and we'll get to him. Kyle, you're, you're teaching or coaching, you could argue both, the you know, 32 female athletes and you've, you've coached both males and females. And so what are some of the challenges as a head coach coaching uh, somebody of the opposite gender, opposite sex? Okay. Uh, early on in my career, because uh, when I started, I had to be, I think, 24, 24, 25. Uh, so early in my career was when dealing with women uh, trying to, me trying to really establish and draw that line. Like, because mm -hmm. at that time I was still close enough in age to where I would have been like a graduate student. 
So yeah. not necessarily taken serious all the time because they didn't necessarily see me as a coach, but more so as a friend. Um, that was that was hard early on. But I mean, you just you just have to stay consistent, man, and just continue to put your foot down. And I encourage a lot of coaches, um, don't be an athlete's friend because mm-hmm. when it comes time to discipline them, they're gonna it's gonna be hard. All right, let's just say that it's it's gonna be hard because they're not gonna be able to disassociate you being their friend versus being their coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say now just coaching women over the years and now coaching women's only uh, versus coaching men. Coaching the athlete itself is essentially the same, but the differences I've experienced is you have to play to a woman's feelings and emotions and you have to play to a male's ego. Hmm. So you have to stroke a male's ego, um, but then with women, like everything is is based off, well, not everything, but uh, most things I've experienced are based off of feeling and emotion. So if they're just not feeling it that day, <laughs> they're just not feeling it that day. Uh, if they bummed an exam or if they had a fallout with a boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, friend, whomever, it's going to be hard for them to shake that. And it's been hard, you know, in my experience to just get them to shake that. And that's, but again, that's just what I've, I've experienced. So I don't want to make a generalization about mm-hmm. all women. Sure. With what I've experienced. Uh, but like I said, but when it comes to just really coaching them, I coach them the same. Uh, an athlete is an athlete. Now, I will say this, and shout out to my women in general. Women can handle more volume than men can in our sport. So, and I'm not sure scientifically why, but they tend to, and my young ladies don't like this, but I have the research to back it. But we tend to do our best uh, in weeks one and three. So if, if I'm looking at my, uh, my micro cycle weeks, we always have our best performances in week one and week three. Week one and week three are usually the heaviest loads. So they perform better where they may not feel the best or feel the most refreshed and everything, but their performances say otherwise. So I've also encountered that and noticed that as well. Uh, but they, and men, and it may be because men are just more muscular, so they may get fatigued faster. You know, blood just isn't circulating the same. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, so I've seen that. And then women tend to be a lot better technically because men tend to use more athleticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those have been the things that I've experienced and that I've noticed. The the interesting thing for for me talking to you is that you're you're fairly you're a fairly recent head coach, and so you can't rely on you know decades of experience as a head coach. You went from being a follower for for many years or a team team player, I should say, in the coaching profession, to suddenly being the person who made the decisions. And you talked a little bit about you know budget being such an issue. Assistant coaches can also be something where you go from being that assistant to being the head and now you're overseeing the assistant coaches. So how do you hire assistant coaches and how do you work and evaluate them? So I will have that experience here soon. Okay. Um, I will be in some way uh, needing to find a replacement once I figure out how we want the staff to look and once I get, you know, finalized budget numbers. 
and everything. So I will, I'll get to know that experience soon. We'll come back to you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I would, I would guess that what I would look for is just someone that can be independent. So the NCAA restricts us to three paid coaches. And so in doing so, you're going to need someone to essentially be their own entrepreneur and they're going to need minimal instruction and direction and just be able to stand alone. So that I will say I would be looking for in any assistant coach that I have around me at this point. Um, and they need to be able to just connect with people. The coaching side, I can teach you the X's and O's about any event. I'm not worried about that. But if you can connect with a person, connect with an athlete, that the job is going to be easy. You know, so because if an athlete trusts you, especially women, if women trust you, they'll run through a brick wall for you. That's what I'll be looking for. But yeah, you should call me back and I'll let you know how the interviewing <laughs> process is going. Um, you mentioned at the beginning a little bit about recruiting and, and some of the challenges of being in a, in a geographic location where there's a lot of big schools around who can maybe take their pick, so to speak. How do you how do you find the best athletes for your program within the limitations of, you know, the superstars may not want to come to your program and want to go to the flagship school? How, how do you find those? And how do you judge whether you should go for somebody who may be super talented, but you could effectively be wasting a lot of time and money pursuing somebody who really isn't that interested in coming to your program? Yeah, so my approach is I always start with relationships. Okay. So no matter what school I, I'm in, like even when I was all the way in the state of Washington, I would reach out to coaches I established relationships with in Tennessee, Florida, and Georgia, and I would just keep those relationships going. Uh, so I always start there. I start with coaches and programs that I know and trust and that always tend to have a, a great depth chart of athletes that perform well. I start there. Uh, if they don't have anyone graduating that year, just nothing available, then I get on mouth split like most coaches do. So I start with mouth split and I'll look at a person's performances, but I don't just look at best marks. I look at the time of year they achieve these performances, how mm. often they are close to their best performance. And then I decide to send an email or make a phone call. Uh, what I will say, since I've been at Georgia State, I was in unfamiliar ter territory. I was an unfamiliar name, unfamiliar face, and Georgia is serious about its track. It's yeah. serious about all its, all its sports, but track and field, they do not play. Mm -hmm. And so in year one, all I did was try to go to as many meets and meet as many coaches as possible to say, hey, I'm Kyle Stevenson. I'm at Georgia State. You know, just nice to meet you. You know, so I established some good, solid relationships here in Georgia. Uh, and so now I, I've now extended my network from more coaches that I have and I trust here in Georgia. Uh, but let's say I don't know anybody. Let's say it's a brand new high school in Florida, you know, and a coach reaches out to me for the first time. I'll check that student athlete stats, number one, because I look for consistency. So if you're a triple jumper on the women's side and you jump 40 feet one time, but you jumped 36 feet 12 times, I'm probably going to pass on you, to be honest. And I'll take the 38 nine-foot triple jumper that has jumped 38 feet about eight times. So that's what I look for. 
so I start there on paper. Then once I talk to my student athletes that I'm recruiting, a lot of times we don't talk track. I really ask them more difficult questions. I ask them to tell me, you know, more about them that's unfavorable. Because in relationships, it's pretty easy. When you mean by unfavorable, what do you mean by unfavorable? Yeah. So and I don't say like what don't I don't say like give me the bad things. I say give me you know tell me about some unfavorable characteristics. You know some things that you know people don't necessarily like or may rub them the wrong way. Uh, so I ask those things. I ask for them to tell me that because everyone is gonna hit the pitch. Well, you know he or she works really really hard. Like they're very coachable. They do all of this. I said that's great. But what are they like when they're pissed off? Because in any relationship, it's great and fun when everything is great and fun and we're laughing and everything is working smooth. But what about me? I'm sarcastic. I'm a sarcastic person. Are you sarcastic? Can you handle sarcasm? You know, um, I, I have a group of athletes on the team like they they're very macho and like alpha women. So if they're poking fun at practice, you know, and they and it's like this talking junk. The last dance is on. So if, if they're using, you know, some things to get under your skin, can you handle that? Or how do you react to it? Those are the things I want to know. You know, when you've had a bad race, do you storm past your coach and run up to your mom and daddy? Or do you take a minute to yourself or do you go find your coach? You know, so those are the things I like to know because then I have to make a decision. Hey, for the next two to three to five years, you know, I'm anticipating working with you. So at least the things that you can be honest with me about, about yourself, it gives me, you know, time to actually evaluate, can I handle this? Am I willing to, you know, adjust and deal with this person's personality? Has anybody asked you what your unfavorable characteristics are? Uh, on job interviews. And <laughs> but not athletes? Uh, so not, not my athletes, but I do this with my athletes. So frequently throughout the season and definitely at the end of each season, we have a very informal, essentially like this, a very informal, like behind closed doors. This is your time to evaluate me. Everything that they say does not get out those doors. I was like, look, if you need to curse or whatever, whatever you want to say, just let me know so I can make the adjustments to be better. So, and we do that throughout the year, but definitely I have evaluations with my athletes at the end of every single year. And that can definitely be vouched for it. So, and it's, it's so helpful, you mm -hmm. know, but that's the type of coach that I am. That's the type of person that I am, you know, so we try to keep it very transparent uh, as best as we can. I want to be thoughtful of your time and, and have one more question for you, unless anyone else has questions watching, which is, Looking back at your career and what you've learned so far in track and field as, uh, you know, an assistant coach, you know, walking on as an athlete, all these things, all the coaches you've worked with and now as a head coach, what advice do you have for coaches who are maybe entering the position or looking to move up from an assistant to a head coach? Now's your chance to kind of tell all and, and kind of provide that. This is what I've learned. Okay. Uh, first, I never wanted to be a head coach, <laughs> so, um, but I'll tell you this, for those that want to move up in the profession, uh, first and foremost, be good at what you do. So when I was at East Tennessee State, be good at what you do and 
accept and embrace whatever your role is if it's not exactly what you want to do at that time so when i start when i was working at east tennessee state i'm like every other first time coach assistant yeah i'm gonna go right on in here and i'm gonna do this i'm gonna coach that and they're gonna do these workouts nah i was an assistant to an assistant Mm. So I spent more time being an operations person. So I handled travel, uh, booking hotels, uh, charter buses, the whole nine. So I was more of an ops person than I was a coach. Oh, but I had some coaching duties. Um, but when it came to my operational task, booking hotels, everything, I owned it. So itineraries to the nine, um, before the head coach could even ask me for stuff, I was handed it to him. And so, and Coach Watts will tell you, and he called he called me my first year after I left. He's like, look, man, I miss you. Can you come back and like send me everything? But I had everything laid out for him and ready to go before he would even ask for it. And I do it now. So in August, we already had our meet schedule set. I had every single hotel, every van, every charter bus, everything was booked at the end of August before cross country, indoor, outdoor track and field even started. So all he would have to do was just show up, mm. you know, but I really, I embraced that role because for me, I knew at the end of the day, at one point, I knew I wanted to be a full-time assistant coach somewhere, you know, and I knew that at some piece of it, no matter division I was going to be in, I may have these duties anyway, so I might as well learn them, but then enjoy doing them. Um, so that would be my, my first piece of advice to any young coach that wants to get into it uh, and move their way up, man. Just embrace it, you know, and really love it and like put your best foot forward. And if you're someone that all you have to do is set out cones, set out those cones, make sure they're polished, you know, and just ready to go before your athletes get there. And then once you uh, once you have your foot in the door, and let's say you know you're you're owning your role and you do this and you do that, you can't network enough. You know, mm -hmm. simply from you know me meeting you, Tim. You know, I met you through Helen, and like I, a few people that know me know that eventually I want to get into consulting and teaching classes. You know, possibly being a, a professor, but. A second thing I would encourage young coaches and any all coaches don't stop meeting people and don't try to meet people in the same discipline. That's another beautiful thing about me and how my mind works. I'm not trying to meet every single um, track coach in the country or in the world. I'll meet whomever. I'll meet basketball coaches. I'll meet uh, athletic directors. I'll meet compliance officers. I'll meet professors because you don't know who knows who. Right. I, I ended up I was fortunate to coach some Chinese athletes, but I met those athletes and made their connection through the Dean of Students at the mm -hmm. Honors College here at Georgia State. And it did not come from any athletic entity at all. You know, so that would be my second piece. And then my third piece is, is simply, I got two more, but third one would be be patient. And the fourth one is be ready. And be ready means be ready. So when your number gets called, just make sure you're ready. Even if you may not feel as though you're ready, be ready. You know, so have your resume up to date, you know, have your philosophies, or, you know, every little piece of knowledge, just be ready. 
And for me, my head coaching transition from assistant has been a little rocky, but being in the role, it hasn't been as difficult as I thought it was because as I was having conversations, I would stop myself and I was like, I guess I was ready to be a head coach. You know, it's just because of so much knowledge I had picked up from every different discipline. Um, but even though I skipped over being patient, the thing with being patient, again, I never wanted to be a head coach. Um, so me receiving it, it's just like, you know, a cherry on top. You know, I had already accomplished what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a full-time assistant. I wanted to coach athletes. I did. So my goal was set and met. But in being patient, uh, my sports supervisor, Brad Horton, you know, he just saw everything that I was doing. Uh, him and Charlie, who was our head AD, they saw everything I was doing. I never mentioned or worded like being a head coach. I was just doing my job, but exceeding expectations. And they made the decision. You know, and here I am. And I don't think it's any other way to do it. Um, somebody may have, you know, a secret button or a secret person they can call. But again, that extends to your network. You know, again, my network was a son stamps telling me that the job was available. I didn't even know that the job was available because I wasn't looking. But because he made a phone call to me, you know, I landed an interview that way. That's it's great advice. Thank you for sharing. We did have one question come in. And I think this ties into getting in touch with you. Coach Vega says, I coach middle school track. Would I be able to get some workouts to help improve my athletes? So um, maybe they can reach out to you. Yeah, yeah, they can email me. Uh, I'm always willing to share knowledge and educate other, other coaches, definitely, because it's only going to improve the sport. Right. Right. Well, his email address is on the screen for you, and it's kstevenson at gsu.edu. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your your honesty and frankness and, and willing to share what your experiences have been, and, and hopefully they help everybody else who's, who's watching now or in future. Thanks so much, Tim. Well, just a reminder, coming up on Monday, hope you, hope you join us at 11 a.m. Eastern. Greg Williams is a multi-championship winning equestrian coach from Auburn University. He's going to be joining us to talk about his experiences. And then Tuesday, I'm looking forward to this, a former student of mine, Jacoby Smith. I called him the honey badger. He was an All-American college wrestler and is now transitioning into MMA. So I want to talk to him about that transition and his experiences as a very successful collegiate athlete. On Wednesday, we move to Ann Davis. She's the director of program, program education for the United States Tennis Association. So I'll be asking her how she runs programming for the community and for volunteer parents and, and so on. And then on Thursday, Olympic snowboard coach John Casson. He has a diverse experience across the Olympic winter sports, uh, has coached several gold winners, so uh, gold medal winners. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about some of those dynamics at the high performance level. And then we round out the week with Chris Babb. He is the college director of sport media for Watchtop Baptist University and was a former high school athletic director as well. So talk to him about transitioning from, from high school into college. So hope you join us for a busy week next week. But on behalf of myself, Tim Backhurst and Kyle Stevenson, thank you so much for watching. All right. Thanks for having me again, Tim.